Welcome to the Legends of Oral Regeneration by the Osteology Foundation. One host, one guest, and a whole bunch of experience and expertise. Meet the people behind the names and get unique insights. So today we are having another uh, meeting with another legend in the field of oral regeneration. And this is covering the foundation, the foundation of Osteology Foundation on the series of legends of oral generation. It is really a great pleasure and privilege uh, to uh, introduce to this podcast today, Professor William Genobile, who is somebody that I personally admire and I have been following his careers for many years. And I, I have the pleasure to I have worked with William in within the Osteology Foundation, but also in other activities for the European Federation of Podontology. And discussing with him today his career and his journey over the years, I think it will be a privilege for everybody to hear how somebody can move from the dentistry, from the dental school, to one of the highest positions that you can have, which is the Dean of the Harvard School of Dental Medicine, which is the current position of Professor Genobile. Professor Genobile is also currently the professor in the Department of Oral Medicine, Infection and Immunity at the Harvard School of Dental Medicine. So, Will, welcome. Uh, it is, as I said, a great pleasure and privilege to having this discussion with you today about your career, about the things that influenced your career, and also about the things that uh, you th- believe that will influence dentistry and oral regeneration in the future. All right. So thank you so much, Professor Donos Nikos. Uh, it's great to be here today with you on this oral uh, tissue regeneration podcast. And uh, as you just mentioned, uh, I've enjoyed our collaborations over the years uh, through the, the EFP through the Osteology Foundation, and also thinking back over 10 years ago, uh, doing a sabbatical uh, with you at the University College London back in 2013. So thank you so much. It's truly an honor and a privilege for me to join you today. Thank you. Thank you very much, William. Um, I think that uh, uh, it's always um, it's always good to start from the beginning, I think, in this kind of podcast. And uh, uh, a question which I'm sure you would have been expecting when we first discussed that we will be having this uh, uh, discussion today would be, how did it all start? Did you always want to be a dentist? I don't even say periodontist yet. I mean, we started the basics in dental school. So give us a little bit of a hint. How, what were your influences and how did it all start and, and you progressed to dental school? Okay. Yeah. It's always a good question. And, you know, as I think back as a young person, I, I grew up in the farmlands of Missouri. So the central part of the United States and, uh, you know, growing up on the farm, I had, you know, during my years in middle school and high school, I always had an interest in science and I was uh, encouraged by a science teacher when I was in high school. And during that time, I engaged in some research science projects that eventually led to my participation in state and national, international science and engineering fairs. And so I greatly enjoyed that and I was inspired in science. And uh, very soon later, I went to the university, studied biochemistry, at the university, and it was one of my biochemistry professors who encouraged me to do a senior project. And that senior project, he knew that I had some dabblings and interests in dentistry. And he encouraged me and he said, you know, how about we have, I've been collaborating with someone who has developed a mutant form of strep mutans glucosal transferase, and I'd like you to help isolate it and uh, be involved in this uh, science project with it. And uh, it was a, it was a, it was a fun project uh, as a, you know, a senior student in the laboratory. And so that, you know, was one of the, the pieces that cemented my interest in science. And as it related 
to, you know, engaging in something. And that at that time, it was karyology. Wow. Um, I really have to say that I didn't know that part of your, uh, your life, uh, and especially how nicely you described the influence of your teachers and your mentors uh, at that part of your uh, uh, career and education, because sometimes we're not always acknowledging how our mentors and our teachers at the early level, early points of our education have influences and how that influence may carry along over the years. I don't know if I should say, thank God you didn't go to cardiology because periodontology would have missed a true legend. So my next question is, so you went to dental school and from there, how things have developed through the first years of dentistry, dental school, and then your decision to follow not cardiology, but perio. Yes. So when I entered into dental school, this was at the University of Missouri at the time, and I was encouraged again by a series of mentors uh, engaged in science. And after my first year of dental school, I applied for a fellowship with the National Institute of Dental Research. It's now called National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research. And so I spent a summer in Bethesda, Maryland in the U.S., and at that time, then I got engaged in a, a the bone research branch at the NIDR. And during that summer, I had a great time. I was involved in the laboratory, but I also had the chance to work in the clinical center of the, N, of the NIH campus. And during that time, I was able to see clinician scientists. So many individuals who were dentists also engaged in clinical research. And so for me to have that summer to engage in research was transformative. And so when I finished that first year of dental school and spent that summer doing that research, when I came back, some of my mentors, and one of them was a periodontist, his name was Charles Cobb, and uh, both he and uh, George Revere is another faculty member. They both said, no, you've got this idea for research. Why don't you get a master's degree while you're in dental school? So I was kind of a, an experiment to, to get a, a master's along with the DDS degree. So I did it as a, a combined uh, program. I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting uh, discussion, and I'm very... Um... I'm very I'm fascinated that you talk about clinical scientists already at this early part of your career. And of course, our um, our, our audience uh, would not be able to see what I'm showing you now, but in front of you, you know, in front of you, in your screen, I'm, I'm holding a book which is called Clinical Research in Oral Health. And uh, uh, you have been the editor, uh, Will, together with Robert Zenko and Brian Bird. And I have to say that this is one of the books that I still, as you can see, there's a lot of uh, stickers in it, and I still consult when I plan clinical research. How did then your 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 interest develop over the years on the clinical research? You're actually leading in Michigan the clinical research center. When we first met, I think this is where your uh, uh, one of your tasks uh, uh, was. How did you? kind of moved away to clinical research to this very professionally and strictly and, 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 and a very well-organized, uh, strictly organized way of delivering clinical research for the best clinical outcomes. Yeah, so thank you. I'm, I'm very pleased to see you with that book and uh, some of the sticky notes that are in it. So I'm, I'm glad that it's uh, been of use to you. You know, when I think about, so after I transitioned from dental school to my advanced uh, training program in periodontology, I went to the Harvard School of Dental Medicine. And at that time, I, I received a funding through the NIH, it was called the Dentist Scientist Program. And it was truly designed to train uh, clinician scientists. And so I was fortunate to receive that funding at at HSDM. And so at Harvard, I had the chance to work with uh, Sam Lynch, Ray Williams, and others at Harvard. And there, I was able to work in a combined environment of a biotech company in the development of growth factors for clinical application. So I was working in the laboratory. But also while I was a resident, uh, the first 
phase one, phase two human clinical trial was launched at Harvard to study the, the potential of PDGF and at that time also IGF-1. And so for me, I stepped back and I saw the amazing you know, potential of being able to be involved with the benchtop research, but the, then also seeing it clinically applied to the patient and in an early stage study. And uh, so for me, during my entire career, I've stuck to that to a certain extent, you know, very gratifying being able to be involved in the laboratory discovery research, but then also get into the clinical arena. And so getting back to your, your question on that book, you know, the genesis of the book was one of the first opportunities I had in a leadership position uh, was granted to me by uh, Peter Polverini, who was the dean at the time at the University of Michigan. So I went to Michigan after graduation and spending a couple of years at Harvard. And at Michigan, they started a clinical research center called the Michigan Center for Oral Health Research. And uh, it was my opportunity to really help support others to engage in bench to the chair side clinical research. And so uh, in collaboration with Brian Burt and Bob Janko, we were able to assemble that book that hopefully served as a bit of a, a manual uh, roadmap on performing clinical research. It certainly did. And uh, definitely, I, I, I still recommend it to my PhD students and my uh, researchers. It is really very well structured and clearly written. I, I would like to stay a little bit in that era, a, a very exciting era uh, when you are in Harvard and, of course, somebody is developing the first uh, uh, the synthetic PDGF and uh, IGF-1. And it's an area that you got involved quite a lot, not necessarily the specific uh, the specific uh, bone markers, bone growth, uh, sorry, growth markers, but in generally the area of regeneration and growth um, factors. How do you see this self? If you would like to reflect on the, this last 20 years that you've been doing this work, do you think that with the eyes and the mind that, and the knowledge that you have now, do you think that it progressed as, as fast as you would like it to, uh, to have done when you were slightly younger and uh, you know, just diving into the area of regeneration? Yeah, it's a great question, especially today, as we think you know, in the year 2023, and you know when PDGF, PDGF was discovered in the 1970s as a molecule that had this growth potential, and then it wasn't until the 1990s where it was first applied in an animal model, and then in the end of the 1990s in a clinical trial and then eventually approved in the United States by the Food and Drug Administration in 2005. So it took a number of years to take it into the clinic where it could then be adopted for clinical care. You know, I think we would both recognize that it's been exciting to see this whole field of tissue engineering, you know, the term coined in 1993, and we've seen in so many different areas in medicine, orthopedics, plastic surgery, dental medicine, where biological factors have been able to have an impact. You know, they've entered into the clinical arena and to be used for tissue regeneration. And, you know, at the same time, they probably are not as highly used as we thought that they would be. Uh, and this, this gets into health economics and looking at how these recombinant molecules or you know, what is the next best regenerative factor that could be used. And you know, they've shown a lot of potential to rebuild bone, soft tissue uh, for both soft tissue grafting, bone regeneration, extraction sockets, implant site development, periodontal regeneration. But I think both of us as periodontists, what we've recognized that there, there has definitely been a shift in the field where there are more people that are placing, we're seeing this tremendous increase in the numbers of implants being placed. I can just say, I heard some recent numbers in the US 
this year there will be about 4 million implants placed in the United States alone and globally uh, many more where we're not looking to really exploit what tissue engineering could really do uh, for tooth preservation, right? So we're seeing that these growth factors are actually being applied in many other arenas. And so what I would like to see is that, you know, as and we've seen the pendulum swing in terms of, you know, the and there was an article I wrote with Klaus Lang, who's been interviewed on this uh, podcast before. He wrote a paper on, you know, are dental implants a panacea or should we better strive to save teeth? And now in the treatment of peri-implantitis, that's very difficult. Uh, growth factors haven't been able to overcome the issues. Uh, it's not only a microbial disease, likely, you know, all these biological complications. So, you know, as I extend this question that you gave me in terms of where we would see it, it's been interesting to see the movements of biological factors, tissue engineering, go to tooth preservation, to implant site reconstruction, and now trying to save implants, and then maybe going back and taking another relook at trying to save teeth. This is really a very strong statement uh, coming from somebody from, from, from your position and from your experience in research and, of course, knowledge in this area. And, of, and as you know, uh, I'm in a full agreement with you that probably we're going back to try to, or at least we think we're going back to try to maintain uh, the teeth. But here you open up a whole two exciting areas for me, which you really are, again, um, very much involved in. In the, in, the, in, in the forefront, really. There are two areas which I think you've done extremely well. One is, of course, the study using biomaterials for three-dimensional structures, scaffolds, and uh, utilizing cells integrated in biomaterials for periodontal regeneration. And maybe you would like to talk a little bit about that. But listen to my second question, which comes from something, another important uh, landmark in your career, at least looking from the outside for me, the fact that you have been an extremely successful editor for the Journal of Dental uh, Research. And uh, I think you have changed the, this, the style of the Journal of Dental Research to the level that you also moved it to a more clinical level, more translational component. Uh, you um, broaden the audience of the Journal of Dental Research. Uh, and this is not a scientific uh, uh, proof, but this is a, an impression that I had, but it has been shared with many others. So as somebody who has been working in the area, in this area of periodontal oral tissue regeneration, from the growth, from the basic, from the bench to the growth factors and to clinical practice, mm -hmm. but also from your knowledge of what you have been seeing coming as the head of general dental research, how do you see the research developing in this area. And here I put an, another caveat, which is called artificial intelligence. You did mention shift, the word that we put in is uh, a quote for you, shift in the field. You mentioned about best regenerative factors, and you talk also health economics. From your perspective as a previous uh, editor, how do you see artificial intelligence and the knowledge of all these factors coming together in a large puzzle, giving us solutions in the field of regeneration, but also in the wider field of dentistry. Maybe, I don't want to put you on the spot because this is a podcast by itself, I would think, and I, I know that you touched some components with that in, in some other astrology podcast before. But looking at it from an editorial perspective, how does that change things? Sure. Well, yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that those series of questions that you just uh, gave uh, Nikos. And uh, I think for me, it was definitely one of the most rewarding uh, positions I ever held was to be an editor of a, of a journal that was global in scope and one that really covered dental oral craniofacial research with the uh, Journal of Dental Research as part of the International Association of Dental Research. And so you know, through sitting as an editor, it's, as I mentioned, it's rewarding to see the outcomes of these, these manuscripts that go out that can potentially change the field, change the profession. 
And so for me, you know, you felt like you're a kid in a candy store. We get to see all of this research come in and we had limited ability to publish, you know, all of the quality work that we had received. But it was really exciting to see many of the different developments in dental medicine over the years during that decade when I was uh, editor of the journal. And uh, there have been a lot of different disruptions in the field. And so one of them that you just give as an example, which is probably one of the biggest disruptions that we have both seen in our careers is the, you know, artificial intelligence. It's, it's become a reality. And I think as educators, we're trying to grapple with it at our universities, uh, helping guide our students. Actually, the students in general are farther ahead of this in terms of application than we are. But uh, the use of AI is going to be so transformative because it's it's affecting all levels of uh, scholarship and the way we're communicating, uh, how it, it's a great research tool. And so at, with so many of these different areas that are emerging in medicine, computational biology, data science, if you can find a data scientist to be a part of your research team, there's some of the most highly sought after individuals. And uh, we've just recently recruited one uh, here at Harvard in our, in our Department of Oral Medicine, Infection and Immunity. And I think where this is going to be very exciting, uh, Nikos, is where we're going to be able to take all of this clinical information, couple it with genomics information, biomarkers, other clinical measures, and then bring it together with these different AI tools for developing more predictive outcomes for therapies um, and to better understand disease. One concept we've heard of is patient stratification, looking at responders, non-responders, and then also trying to parse out, you know, what are the best protocols for specific patients, right? And so as clinicians, we use a lot of traditional clinical decision-making, and now these tools may be able to help us as clinicians to better customize our care. And uh, it's, it's going to be a number of years before we, we sort it all out, but it's, uh, it's, it's going to have a major impact on dentistry, and it already is right now. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Will, because this is really a very concise and comprehensive response from somebody who is really in a leadership position and see how things develop uh, in this field. And, and I, I actually liked very much so the fact that you say that in our research teams now you have a data scientist as a, a new member, which if you would have told me, I don't know, when I started my career back in 1991, that, uh, you know, within your research team, a data scientist will be needed. I could not even understand what you're talking about. But it just shows how the, the, the type of research is uh, saved. And, of course, you mentioned the responders and the non-responders, things that we as clinicians know, but actually we never really are able or were able to uh, explain why sometimes things work and sometimes they do not. I will have another question on that if we have some time at the end in terms of where do you see clinical research developing? Because I know that this has been such a big part of your uh, professional life and also you dealt with that as the editor of the JTR. But I would like to go a little bit back to nostalgia again, a little bit back to the past. I think that all of us who have been working with research over the years, we have been influenced by a specific publication, a specific event, uh, when we became periodontists and we were during our PhD or after PhD, or maybe we have one or two mentors that made a big difference to us in the way that we think or in the way that uh, we aspire, who we aspire to be. Mm -hmm. Has that been any publication or any research event that really shape up your way of thinking and maybe mentor or uh, a colleague or, or somebody in the field of periodontology dentistry that influenced you significantly in how you develop your career? Yes, it's a great question. And I think each one of us, as our careers move onward, 
we realize our careers are actually quite short. Uh, time flies. And, you know, one of the things that we, it's a great privilege for us as educators is we get to work with young people and they come up with so many amazing ideas that can inspire us as educators. And I try to think back, you know, to your question. When I was a young person, I gave the example of in high school, I had a science teacher who inspired me. I had a biochemistry professor who helped uh, cultivate some of my interests. And so throughout my career, I've certainly been blessed by so many different mentors. So it becomes, it's hard for me to just say there's one pivotal person, but I, I would say during my career, so I already mentioned once I had arrived at Harvard, it was Sam Lynch and uh, Ray Williams, these were two people within periodontology. Sam was really on the cutting edge of the use of growth factors, whereas Ray Williams, he was a real visionary in identifying the potential of new technologies and as a clinician and his way to communicate. And then, you know, one of, and we all reach these different challenges in our career. And what happened when I was in the graduate program is that the biotech company that Sam was working with had uh, had basically a change where he had to leave uh, his association with the university, the Boston area. Ray Williams moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So then I was left without two of my key mentors. And then during that time, I had the opportunity to go to the laboratory uh, with uh, in the laboratory, his name was Chuck Stiles, and he was one of the co-discoverers of platelet-derived growth factor. He was at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And I had the opportunity to work with him. And what was quite interesting is he knew I had the interest in periodontal regeneration. We weren't really using the term tissue engineering at that time. And he said, well, you know, there could be some other ways that you can deliver these growth factors. And so I worked in a lab that was at the cutting edge of using gene therapies for a variety of different clinical applications. They were using gene therapy to treat uh, brain cancers. And I had the chance to learn a lot of different molecular methods during that time. And then it that ended up being pivotal for me to extend my, you know, stretch myself as a graduate student. And then I was able to write my first grant, and it was based on the use of gene delivery for periodontal regeneration. And the first time I submitted it, it was rejected. Uh, the grant was not accepted. And it was a time where I had a chance to reflect, do I want to stay in academia or not? Uh, I was encouraged, you know, either way, uh, I, I've gained a lot during this graduate training, but I went ahead and resubmitted, had some support here, received the grant funding, and then moved to University of Michigan. And at University of Michigan, a key mentor there was Martha Summerman. And Martha Summerman was the chair of the department at the time. Uh, she recruited me over there. I never would have thought I'd be ending up in Michigan and living there for 22 years. But uh, she was a tremendous mentor. and. Uh, you know, she later, as you, you uh, know, she became the director of the National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research. So she was a visionary herself. And so it was probably during that time, having those first successes as an independent investigator, working with, you know, great mentors, uh, Chuck Stiles, Martha Summerman at that time, moving me into that, looking at the use of the gene therapeutics and then, you know, later trying to bring it back to the clinic. I never made it into the clinic with the gene therapies, uh, but then did some other shifts in other areas, stem cell biology, uh, other applications. I remember actually your presentation at the Europeer in Berlin on gene uh, therapy. It was very spectacular. And sometimes I wonder if you would like to revisit some of the concepts that you tried in the past, and maybe the limitation was the technology at that time, not the concept per se. 
Do you see yourself as you're reflecting back in your career that some things that you have done and you stopped, maybe now that technology has developed, may be possible to address or pass the idea to the, the new generation? Right. So, you know, we're hitting on something that uh, in these latter stages of my career that I'm realizing more and more is, you know, the timing of the, you know, the implementation of some of these therapies. So when we think of bench to chair side, uh, that's one jump, right? To get something into the clinic to do the first human studies, you know, gene therapy has been placed into humans and uh, has been applied, but it has not been clinically adopted. And to get something to be, you know, tested in humans is one thing but then to have clinicians use it is another. And as a part of that process is the regulatory burden. And that's one of the things that when you reflect on that uh, textbook and also with the osteology, we have a osteology guidelines as well on clinical research. And so much of it is on regulations. And I don't have to tell you coming from the UK, you guys, you probably set the bar uh, in terms of those challenges. And so what I realized as a single investigator, there were certain things that I could just not overcome myself. I had to work with teams and people who have expertise in the regulatory aspect, people with expertise in the manufacturing, those who understand clinical decision-making by key opinion leaders, right? So you and I see patients, but not like the five plus day a week, you know, some of these master clinicians who are doing it every day, and they understand many of these very specific aspects on how easy is this to use? What are the concerns when you talk to the patient? And so a lot of these innovations in dentistry, I think that you have, they have to be easy to use, cost-effective, and something has to resonate with the patient as well, where they're not concerned. You know, new technology, gene therapy sounds cool, but to many patients, they have an aversion to that. It's, that sounds very risky. And so what I started to discover later when I you know, came off of my cloud and I thought everyone would be using gene therapy by now, we realized that uh, many in the field have backed away from that because of perceptions from patients. All it takes is one negative study mm -hmm. to turn people away on these things. So, you know, to your question, you're right. Sometimes these things might've been too early to implement. And, you know, over the next few years, as the regulations may become a little bit more user-friendly, I mean, we take uh, PDGF is still not widely available in Europe. And, it's had a safety profile for almost 20 years in the United States. What is it, right? And I can't answer that question, uh, why it's not there, but it's it takes a lot of fortitude by industry, right? Having these industrial academic partnerships is so critical. Uh, we both, it, it enriches our ability as uh, academics to collaborate with industry because industry shares the same, the same uh, vision to get things into patients, to transform clinical care. And they have a lot of the, you know, the firepower from a, you know, a financial standpoint and an incentive to get it clinically adopted. Very clear, Will, and, 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 and actually it shows a great insight uh, on the whole process as well, uh, which uh, um, uh, sometimes, unfortunately, you find, you discover on the way as you progress. I would like to move um, uh, a little bit out of the research and going to uh, professional organizations, how we interact in our career as we developed uh, and as you develop your career. And I, I, you know, you know more about the organization that you have been either member or leader or uh, as a significant role. And I can mention some of them, IADR, AAP, Osteology Foundation, strong collaboration with the AFP, ITI, AO. So 
in a sense, you are a truly global research, uh, researcher and educator. Drawing from your experience, talking to master clinicians, to researchers, basic scientists, and clinical research, and, and you know, from the experience from Europe and the US, so in a, in a sense, or actually a global component that this organization that I mentioned reflect upon it, what do you think, apart from having a strong, strong track record in research and a strong interest and knowledge of education, what do you think makes a successful leader? Call it in the university, call it in a professional organization. I mean, obviously you are one of them. So, but reflecting, when you are looking at somebody, what are you looking to say, oh, this person one day will be a successful leader or this person is a successful leader? What is your definition? So, yeah, you know, Nikos, you you highlight a, a couple of strong uh, points and, you know, thinking about, I, I do want to take this time as a part of this podcast to give a shout out to the Osteology Foundation in terms of when you mentioned from, from my own personal growth and development, this truly is one of the best organizations that I have ever been a part of, Osteology Foundation, because it's truly a global organization. And for me personally, to have an organization that's focused on oral tissue regeneration, and it's really comprised of individuals who value science and value education. And so a lot of, you know, talk, you know this question you're asking me on what makes a good leader, uh, being able to be a part of this Osteology Foundation board where you know, the, the board members were all individuals I looked up to, you know, Ron Nevins, Jan Lindy, Klaus Lang, Massimo Simeon, you know, so many different individuals who were on that board, Danny Boozer, uh, you know, so many others that really helped inspire me. And I was able to model certain aspects of, of these individuals. I think each one of us has to find their own way, right? There's some people were like, we look to them and we say, I want to be just like them. Well, there's certain elements you can you can do that are natural. Others, you, you have to have your own style. And uh, so for me, what I, uh, what I would say to, you know, the young people who are looking at you know, futures to be a leader, you know, the way I started, I, I didn't no, I would go down this path. Actually, I never thought I would be a dean. I never thought I would be a department chair. And what I think what makes for a good leader and the, the, those leaders that I have admired is that these are the people that have gone through all of the steps and have done the hard work to, number one, be a good student, someone who works hard in the laboratory or clinic, and there are many of the things that you do that you're not going to get recognition for. You're the person behind the scenes working in the lab, cleaning the things, you know, the, the laboratory up, and then making sure the experiments are well-designed, well-prepared. You're the person who's checking and making sure all of the quality is there. You work to get things done. You know, it's, it's simple as that. Someone that you can rely on who will complete the task in a timely manner, but with quality. And then building that up, being, if you have to do a postdoctoral program, if you become the junior faculty member, uh, I know some junior faculty members who they start off and they want to be in charge of this, that, and the other. Take it, take it back. You know, being an assistant professor is one of the best times of your career not a lot of administrative responsibility and really focus on you know establishing yourself you want to you want to be recognized for a specific area of excellence and help define yourself you'll have great mentors who will take you under their wing uh, but then over time you want to develop your own innovative concepts and so Going through those steps, and then you start going up, being ready to be a leader. With each step at being a leader, you want to be a role model. For one, you still have to do the work. And then 
it becomes less and less about you. Like I'm at the point in my career, I still love publishing a paper like I did when I was a graduate student. Uh, However, it's much more important that I'm working to inspire and support the leadership at the school, the young faculty members. And that's what drove me to become a dean uh, in the end was that I knew that uh, for me as an assistant professor, as a director of a clinical research center, a chair, I was always limited by the support I had by my academic leaders. And so for me, having some of those experiences to work to inspire, lift people up, look at their motivations. We all need encouragement. Uh, I I took a program once on positive leadership, and I've told many people about this. It was one of the best courses I programs I had taken because I thought I was already a fairly positive person. But what I realized just from a motivational standpoint, how it's really important for us to encourage others. And as leaders, we, we have to be a cheerleader to support and recognize those individuals who are working hard towards the mission, supporting the mission and uh, helping bring the team together. It's about the team and it's less about you as the leader. I, I really liked uh, I really liked the way that you uh, put it together uh, and uh, the the word positive leadership and certainly from the way I know you you are certainly a positive leader. You lead in a very positive uh, way in a positive manner. And I think in our profession it's very often the case that it's easier to put all the problems out there without a solution or to identify the negative to you know to emphasize the negativity and not necessarily put emphasis uh at the positive signs that exist within a team, within a group or within an institute. Um you did mention though that now you know you you are you had your role models, it's less about you, and now here you are. You're the dean. In 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 a sense, you're the chief executive. <laughs> of uh, of the place uh, you are in the Harvard uh, Dental School, renowned, uh, very high position in QS rankings every single year, and you come in as I think it's a return if I'm if I'm not wrong, right? In a sense for you, is going back. Hey, question one: how, how does it feel? You you started your your research. Well, you were on your way, but you do start developing the early stages of your career in Harvard, and then. You're back as a leader. How does how does how was the first day at the office when you opened the door of being the dean? Yes. Oh, it's uh, yeah. A- a- initially, it felt like a surreal experience. I couldn't believe that I uh, had this opportunity to return back to Harvard, and I've you know I've felt it's been a privilege uh, and an honor and something that I also feel you know the the responsibility to support uh, our faculty, our staff, our students. And I think about when I started. So I started on September 1st, 2020, and I had signed my agreement to take this role on. I think it was around March 20th. So the, the pandemic was just starting, but I had no idea that it was gonna roll out like it did. And so the promotional video for me to be uh, dean, I had just gotten into town one week before, but I had to get all the requisite, you know, COVID testing. The results didn't come back in time. So we clicked quickly, pulled this together. And, you know, I didn't get a chance to start at a time where I could really get that team together. Uh, but I also felt like there was a, I, I was coming at a time where the community needed me and it was tough for all of us, right? Every single person was impacted by that pandemic. But to come back to the school, even though it was that challenging time, it's still, uh, you know, I pinch myself to say, you know, this is real and having this opportunity. Certainly it's a challenging uh, position. And it's also highly rewarding. So as uh, you know, as I mentioned, in terms of the leadership, uh, working with people, I'm, I'm just inspired by our students. We've got a, a wonderful group of students, our pre-doctoral 
and graduate students just seeing their passion, their excitement. I, I, I feed off of that energy from those students. And we have a lot of what we call change innovation ongoing at the school. And I'm just so grateful to these, uh, the faculty and staff that have been going above and beyond. And it was a hard haul for them during that pandemic and starting. And so, you know, as you build your team, those relationships, uh, like right now we're talking off of a screen and we've learned how to adapt to Zoom much better than 2020. And, um, but we realize that in-person connection as a leader is so important. And so I, I feel even more enthused about the role over this, you know, now entering into my third year, uh, having this opportunity to work with the team. And um, if we look at uh, you as your role as the dean now, and you reflect, you reflect about artificial intelligence, you reflect about uh, education, how education is moving, you briefly touched upon how the new generation of students are potentially more competent in, in, and have other skills that we do not have. Where do you see the new generation of dentists? How do you think our profession is changing in terms of undergraduate and postgraduate education, maybe in 20 years from now? What do you think from your position, from your leadership position as a dean, that you have a clear overview of what's happening in the U.S. and Europe at least? What do you think things will progress and change? Yes, well, that's a great question. We could have another separate podcast. (laughs) Yes, because it's, you know, I use the word disruptive when it uh, comes to AI. And also, I think we're in for a lot of changes in all of education. Right, the, the pandemic exposed uh, many of the limitations of our current uh, educational systems, and also provided a lot of opportunities on how education is delivered. And when you mentioned the students, we're both probably Generation X, but many of the students view us as boomers. And it's the the greatest critique they can give you if they call you that. My son occasionally will say that, but. Um, what we see is with the iGen and millennials, uh, there's, there's, you know, oftentimes the, we, we're hard on this generation, but also they're highly innovative. And what I have learned from the many of the young people that I work with, you know, the way that they take in uh, information is much different than we did in our days. You know, we were going to the library, looking up, where are the manuscripts, photocopying them, going over them line by line. And we talked about the editorial process. Now there's been such a proliferation of information. This generation has become highly effective in their ability to parse out key pieces of information. You know, we can't run a literature review like we did before. I mean, if people read the title, and maybe the conclusions of the abstract and look at a couple of figures, you've you've done a great job. Um, And at the same time, I still am old school and I I value, I tell people, read the whole paper. Uh, But what we're realizing is that, you know, some of these snapshots, uh, this is what this generation is looking at. And so it's, it's putting a pressure on us in education to be more, uh, streamlined in how we provide information because that's what they're demanding. Uh, I was just meeting with a corporate group the other day and they were asking about education. And in the U.S., there's been a great proliferation of dental schools and the way the information is being disseminated, we're going to have probably uh, more blended education and we're going to have to look <coughs> look at how these degrees are granted. Uh, We still, you know, universities are that authoritative resource. We're providing the degrees, but as we look at how the public values expertise, it's tending to decline. And so it's putting a pressure on educational system. We have to change. Uh, I don't have the answer for you on that on the next 20 years. Uh, but it's it's going to have to change. In the U.S., the cost of education 
is a big barrier and uh, some of the efficiencies and the time that's spent to go through these educational programs. I think both of us have gotten, you know, our dental degrees, PhDs, specialty training, all of this. And uh, we're looking at other more efficient ways for the process. But uh, even as I said, to become a leader, you can't skip steps. Uh, it's just a matter of how can we customize these steps a bit better in terms of education. Thank you, William. This uh, has been really a true honor to be spending an hour, really quality time with you. And sometimes actually we don't have the time, even though we meet regularly, we never had the time yeah. to sit down and just talk about it. So this interview provided me with a great insight of how you have achieved all the great uh, uh, how you developed your skills and how you achieved all the great landmarks that you have in your career. I, I Again, I confirm and I, uh, that you are one of the most positive leaders that I have met, but also certainly a true legend in terms of uh, oral regeneration. I know your time is very precious and limited, and we were supposed to probably have finished uh, maybe a few minutes uh, before our dedicated time. However, I will make a very quick question, which you know, it can, we can start all over again. So the question is, Professor Janobili, would you do it all over again? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Professor Janobili. Dear Will, it has been a great pleasure being with you today. Thank you for your time and for providing us the insight of uh, how you can develop uh, skills and uh, how you can be a leader and hopefully one day for all the early career researchers and other type of researchers, a true legend in our generation. Thank you so much. It was truly an honor and a privilege. And I, I really enjoyed our time together today. Thank you so much. Are we okay, Helen? One host, one guest, and a whole bunch of experience and expertise. Meet the people behind the names and get unique insights.